ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Deconstructing the world of classic cinema. It is 2021. Yay! Yay! Finally. The world has not magically been righted, but it is a new year, new outlook, new podcast episode. I am excited. I am here, as always, with Drea Clark. Hi. And Samantha Ellis. Hello. We are talking, as always, first of the year, first episode of the year. Our 2021 classic film discoveries, the new to me movies that got us through 2020. For me, and I think we'll be saying this a lot as we go into this, classic film more than any other year really got me through 2020. I don't know how I would have gone without the comfort of TCM and just kind of being able to enmesh myself in the world of old Hollywood. So I thank TCM for keeping me sane this year more than any other year. The criteria that I had for this list, and I had to change it very rapidly, was that technically the movie that I would say was probably my best new discovery did air on TCM, but it is not of the years that we discuss. It's it's outside of our 1975-ish parameter. So it will be in the honorable mentions, but just know that it would have won my number one with a bullet. All the movies that I picked this year, and, and I have a full list of this going on, our brand new spangly Ticklish Business website, which I don't talk about enough, which you can visit over at journeysinclassicfilm.com. I actually did a whole list of all of the movies that I loved this year that were new to me, and I had a list of 40. So I had to pare it down from 40 to the three that are here. Samantha, Drea, did you have lengthy lists? I mean, what did classic cinema mean to you in 2020 and how did you come up with the three that you had for me and for a lot of people when we say 2020 time has ceased to exist as i generally recognized it i'm no longer fully conscious of the shape of days or weeks or months i can't gauge correctly how long it's been since i saw something and i think that's one of the reasons that classic film was even more of a good anchor this year because I already felt like someone out of time, which maybe is how Samantha feels all the time because, as you know, I'm convinced she's a time traveler. When I was looking back and what were the strong ones, these were all things that I was like, oh, I think I saw these all in the last month and was like, nope, one of them was from May, one of them was from July. The ones that stayed in my head as if I had just seen them even though it had been months and months. That's what rose them to the top of the list for me. One of the ones that I have is because I had a particular genre journey this year, but I'll save that for when I talk about that film. I feel like I'm a bit of an outlier here because my 2020 has been so busy. I've just had so many things to do and deal with, career changes, personal life changes that I didn't really have a lot of time to watch classic movies. I wish I had time (laughs) to let classic movies be my crutch. A lot of the ones that appear on my list are ones that I watch pretty early in the year. I mean, I did have so many amazing new discoveries and I totally agree. I was just talking to Kristen before we started recording about the concept of time just not existing this year anymore. 
every year I say this, but I could never record this episode without Letterboxd. <laughs> I'm not trying to do like a plug or anything. I literally had to go back and look at my old reviews and look at my old ratings and all the films that I watched this year or else I would have had zero idea. As always, my list skews very heavily towards the 30s, but we're going to talk about that. We got a lot of responses from other podcasters and listeners, so I want to start by kicking off with one of their classic film discoveries. I want to thank Maureen Lee Lenker and Oriana, her co-host of the Hollywoodography podcast. They've been doing the goal of watching every Natalie Wood film and talking about it. Their biggest discovery in watching Natalie Wood's filmography was the film Driftwood. And they said, in the midst of a global pandemic, we started a podcast where we are currently going through Natalie Wood's filmography movie by movie. We discovered this little gem from 1947. Natalie stars a six-year-old girl named Jenny, a child who's been sheltered from the world by her religious grandfather. When he dies, she finds her way to a small town in the company of a collie with an important secret. Taken in by Dr. Stephen Webster, played by Dean Jagger, Jenny must contend with small-town bullies and a yellow fever outbreak. It also features character actors like Walter Brennan and the Wicked Witch herself, Margaret Hamilton. The film delves into the dissemination of misinformation by politicians, mistrust in science, and the importance of vaccines, inadvertently making it the most timely of discoveries for 2020. They also had individual films for themselves, Bonjour Tristes and Babyface for Oriana and Maureen, respectively. So I thank both of them for sending us their suggestions. If you haven't listened to their podcast, Hollywoodography, you love Nollywood, definitely make sure to listen to it. But let's start us off with our first round of picks. Now we say these are top three. I know none of us really rank. I don't know if we rank specifically. So I'm just going to start with the one that would have been lower on the list just in terms of I saw it later in the year. It stuck with me, but it's not one that I remember explicitly as, as recently. And that's Cry Havoc. Grace Lambert, burlesque. <gasps> burlesque? What did you do in burlesque? Well, you know what you do to a banana before you eat it? Well, I do that to music. <laughs> <laughs> You're sure you never ran across him in Manila? He's kind of tall and blonde and has a funny little lisp. Well, not much of a lisp, just enough to sound cute. Ain't nobody in the Marines that lisps. From 1943, which you might remember, Samantha included on her discoveries list. When was it, last year? I believe it was last year. That makes me so happy. <laughs> Listen to Samantha's thoughts on our discoveries from 2019 episode. I was blown away by this movie. This was right next to what would have been my number one as being just a great throwback to women working in World War II. It's got Margaret Sullivan as the leader of this all-star cast of women who are hospital volunteers working in Bataan during World War II. And it is just the most unrelenting look at war from a female perspective. There is absolutely nothing glamorous, nothing romantic. Even though the women yearn for those things, that's not what this movie is. It is just a place of fear and anxiety, everything we've associated with this year alone. All of the actresses are amazing. I don't really care for Margaret Sullivan, but I thought she was fantastic. Joan Blondell is there. My noir favorite, Ella Raines, Marcia Hunt. In the ending, oh my gosh, it's just a gut punch if you know history. Seeing the strength and the determination of these women 
it is a film that should be a lot heavier than it is. And it is heavy, but there are so many moments of lightness and attempts at levity and just warmth that it is amazing. And it's got a cameo by Bob Mitchum playing a dying soldier, which is awesome. I was so happy to see this. I was so happy that Samantha put it in my way so that I'd finally watch it. And I think it sets the tone for the rest of my three. Thank you, Samantha. Oh my gosh. It makes me so happy that you saw that. It's really one of those films. It's impossible to believe that they made it when they did. It's just so timely, especially when you look at the huge resurgence of female-driven pictures. It's kind of like the hot-button topic these days in, in cinema. It should be included in those conversations to me always, especially when we're talking about war pictures. So I'm so glad you got to see it. Yay! Drea, what was your number three? Well, I have to tell you out of full guilt that I have yet to see Cry Havoc, and now there's no escaping it. It's going on to my must-watch list for 2021. Because the shame of it being on both of yours and me we're, not having We're going to have our 2022 list and yeah. it's going to be on yours. And we're going to talk It'll about it. It'll be the third, <laughs> yeah, the third year in a row that Cry Havoc will make our uh, discoveries. I'm down for that. I mean, who loves an all-female cast or a female perspective more than me? Speaking of female perspectives, I'm with Kristen, these are my top three, but not necessarily did I think of them in like weighted order. This was a movie I saw either a month ago or five months ago, whenever it was on TCM. Heard it referenced for so long and had such a complicated but really rich viewing of it. And that is The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone with Vivian Lee and Warren Beatty. The scene, Rome, Italy. Not the city of imperial monuments or Renaissance glories. Not the busy modern capital, but a Rome few tourists ever enter. It is the Rome that lives in the glare of sensation, where the sophisticated and the notorious of two continents meet. Ah, Renato, do you know her? Ah, she's not for you. Have you seen the American lady again this week? Do you know she is so famous that she has to wear dark glasses so that people won't recognize her? Last night, I... this Signora Stone. I didn't know she was such a great lady. Yes, a great lady, famous in international society, a glamorous woman of the world. It's from 1961. It was directed by Jose Quintero, who was a huge Broadway director and actually established the Circle in the Round Theater off-Broadway. The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone is from source material by Tennessee Williams. It's the only film he did after this incredible theater career and i feel like that shows in the film especially since they have some exteriors from rome and then all of these super elaborate very theatrical looking sets for the inside the crux of this story is vivian lee who is playing a 50 year old actress so you know so old washed up but of course it's funny because to me she's a stage actress and she leaves a production of As You Like It because she's meant to be playing the young ingenue role. And she is, in fact, 50. Oh, I don't know how cutting you're being about not having roles for older women when this woman is trying to play a 20-year-old. Basically, she's going with her multimillionaire husband and he dies en route to this vacation. And she's like, all right, I'm going to live my best life. And that best life includes me just saying yes to Warren Beatty with 
terrible accent as a Italian guy. I love it. The worst accent ever, but he is so beautiful in this. I don't care. He's beautiful until that Mario and Luigi accent comes out of his mouth. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes with people that beautiful, you're like, no, 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 don't speak. Don't, don't speak. And he very much gives you that. Even though I found flaws in like some of the story elements and production things, there's something at the root of this that's not explored all the time of female sexuality and desirability past a certain age. The idea of her agency and her absolute desolate, desperate view of all this. It has a really bummer weird ending that seems very of the theater to me and that the fact that they stayed with it is surprising also vivian lee is such a fascinating vehicle for this because you look at her and you're like we knew you when you were the ingenue you know her shape of it behind this story and so you can project certain things onto that i found it infinitely fascinating kristen's obviously enjoyed that sweet sweet accent so um, i haven't seen it in a while but i remember going through my word baby phase and watching it being like oh god accent i need to revisit it you know what the weirdest thing is i saw this really early in my classic film discovery and this is the first warren Beatty film i saw (laughs) so to have that to compare when you're watching bonnie and clyde and splendor in the grass is really weird let me tell you (laughs) the man is just preternaturally beautiful this was his big introductory role too right i guess he had done one picture or something before this but this was his leading man whatever and he's like a charm bucket he's again handsome and good enough that you're like oh that's okay that you talk like this uh you let it go samantha what's your first discovery of this year that you want to talk about mine are ranked a little bit i'm not one to rank some movies above other movies but my third would be history is made at night from 1937 i actually wrote about this film in october for gene arthur's centennial wouldn't it be wonderful irene if you were a magician and could change me into him just think you two alone right now in this room on this boat in the middle of the sea. What would you give, Irene? Well, what would you give? I'd give my soul. You set a trap to catch me with one, and another came instead to tell me that he loves me, and for me to tell him I love him too. I have to admit, I really didn't give it much of a chance at first. The beginning didn't really impress me. Going in, I didn't love Gene Arthur or Charles Boyer. Once I became invested in the story and I saw how devoted to each other the characters Irene and Paul were, I found it really romantic and captivating the rest of the way through. I'd previously seen Gene Arthur in several movies, but I feel like Jean and Charles Boyer were two very prim and proper stars that paired together allowed each other to let their hair down and they displayed their more natural selves in this. I would go as far as to say hands down this is my favorite Charles Boyer performance now and that's after seeing like Gaslight and so many of his other works. 
he shows so much of a lighter and more delightful side to his personality in this. It sort of reminds me a little bit of Cary Grant letting his hair down in Gunga Din. I feel like that side of him is really absent in some of his other films that I've seen. It's not to say that the film is all sunshine because it goes into some really dark themes with the Titanic-esque scenes and Colin Clive is a really demented and vile and corrupt villain. It's so different from other films of the period because usually in classic film, the jealous husband is in the right because the cheating woman is in the wrong. But in this, the lovers, they go off and they're great and... Colin Clive gets his comeuppance. They express so much pain and so much joy in this film. It's really fascinating. And I feel like it kind of slips through the cracks. I know it was on Criterion for a while. It switched between Hulu for a while. It might even be in the public domain. It's definitely one to catch, I think. I saw this a long time ago when it was on Hulu. This does not have a physical release, if memory serves. And I always hate when that happens because it's hard to recommend stuff that you have to search for but i need to revisit it because i remember watching it and just being like oh, okay once again sam pointing me down some interesting path it was on um, criterion channel when i watched okay yeah it. So i believe it still is but i don't think it's part of criterion i think it is part of criterion actually because i remember it having a criterion logo I, much like i married a witch when they bought but then they didn't release for some reason Criterion has weird, weird rights issues. We should just shout out to them like, hey, Criterion. Get on this, yeah. (laughs) Get get some good art on this. Yes. Nice number two, but it's from 1962. It's also Tennessee Williams film, Drea. It is period of adjustment. Going off to a strange place. You picked Miami. Strange man I'm not even related to. In a hearse. Dragging me off to the old man river motel. this is one that I wish got a bit more love. This is one of a couple Tennessee Williams adaptations that I saw this year for the first time. Another one's going to end up in my honorable mentions. Period of Adjustment is the story of two different couples, one of whom is a newlywed couple played by Jane Fonda and Jim Hutton, who are on their honeymoon, but she is a young woman that knows nothing about sex and is understandably nervous and freaked out by what is about to happen to her on their wedding night. Jim Hutton's character is a wounded war vet who is dealing with some issues with regards to his sexual prowess that he is having issues dealing with. So they decide as they are traveling in their honeymoon hearse to go visit an old army friend of his played by Anthony Franciosa who is having issues with his own long-term wife. They are on the verge of divorce. And it is all set on Christmas. It is just this blackly comic look at relationships and marriage and masculinity and feminism and all these different things. And it's very, very funny. I'm a fan of really convoluted Christmas comedies that are about the horrors of actually having to spend Christmas with friends and family. Up until it became not cool to talk about it anymore, The Ref was my favorite Christmas movie, which should give you a lot of inkling into my thought process. I thought this movie was a lot of fun 
It's not just Jane Fonda in one of her earlier roles who does a lot as being this shrill Southern belle who many people think is a prostitute because of how she dresses, but she's not. She's a good girl at heart who loves her daddy. It was a real great time for Anthony Franciosa to shine. I love him. We don't talk about Tony Franciosa enough. He is one half of my favorite low-rent Burton and Taylor couple. Just Google his marriage to Shelly Winters. Go down that rabbit hole. It's great. He does not get enough love. He did not get to lead enough pictures. Having seen him before this in The Long Hot Summer, which is another story about men and worrying about their virility, it was great to see him have to be this father figure slash older wizen friend who's like, dude, marriage sucks. <laughs> like, and it doesn't get any easier. You just got to deal with it. So if you were looking for like a dark comic film directed by George Roy Hill before he did... I believe Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You should watch this. It is delightful, cringingly funny, and is well acted. And I just had so much fun with it. I don't know baseball, but I'm that thing where I'm batting a bad average because I have not seen that one nor <laughs> The Cry Havoc. You guys, <laughs> it's a shame. I like your description of it a lot, though. Which is part of what we're doing this, right? Yeah, Dang, exactly. Dangling little morsels for people to chop on. So Yes, exactly. I haven't seen this one, actually, which is surprising because I love young Jane Fonda. Tony Franciosa, you listed the two movies I've seen. Well, I've seen this and I want to say Hatful of Rain if he's in that, but that's it. <laughs> so yeah, it, definitely it, need to investigate this a whole Shelley Winters thing because I knew they were married. Shelly Winters had a type, let me just say that. <laughs> when you look at John Garfield and Anthony Francesa, you're like, oh, I get it, I get it now. Shelly Winters married her some men, okay? Future idea, Shelly Winters podcast. Drea, what's your number two? Here's what's going to blow your mind. My number two has a Ms. Shelly Winters in it. It's all connected! It really is. Perfect. <laughs> it's unexpected thread. So this is the one I was alluding to earlier that... You guys may or may not know, I did a deep dive into Westerns this year. I've watched over 60 Westerns just in the last few months. A real intense way to spend a few months. A lot of masculinity and isolation and violence. The gems that came out in my exploration definitely stood. And this one with Michelle Winters is, of course, Winchester 73 from 1950, starring Jimmy Stewart. To seven people, this gun was a magnet, a treasure, a weapon that promised life and dealt out death. For this saga of the West, Universal International has assembled a matchless cast, James Stewart, whose personal feud led to one of the grimmest manhunts ever filmed. Shelley Winters, trigger sharp and dangerous in her own way. Dan Duryea as vicious Waco Johnny Dean, who killed to get the gun. Stephen McNally, brutal, deadly, who wanted the rifle to slaughter men. Sound like an engine trader, but with all that smoke in the hills and you with no gun. Why don't you shoot? The man's right, give him a gun. I love it because if you're someone who came to Jimmy Stewart via Frank Capra, if you have a lovey, doofy, nice guy, seeing Jimmy Stewart in Westerns is such a mind trip because you're like, what, who? No, you're the nice guy. Shouldn't you be like the school teacher in this town? Who gave you a gun anyway? But he does a great job of it. And his everyman flair comes across differently. And Winchester 73 is really shaped in such a unique way because 
The Winchester 73 was a rifle, obviously, or you may or may not know that. It's set around this gunslinger. They get to win this rifle. Someone wins it and steals it. And you're basically following the story as the rifle changes hands. Because different people steal it and kill for it. You're with each of these characters as they go. Shelly Winters plays the female lead. She's such a babe. She's full Shelly Winters in this. Babe and sassy in her own sparkly, crackly way. She looks so soft and pliable, but is like, what? You don't even know what? I just love her. She's just a crackle. Westerns or anything, we've talked about the problematic. This, for instance, has Rock Hudson as a Native American. So there's some uh, questionable things, but how it's looking at right and wrong and masculinity and the idea of who's protecting whom and family and what ties between kin mean when someone's gone wrong. Winchester 73 was just a real standout amongst all of the films and certainly the older Westerns I saw as well. I just have to throw out there, that's my favorite Western, just straight up. That movie has been such a part of my classic film discovery. It's the only movie that I was first in line for at any of the TCM classic film festivals when they did the Martin Scorsese restoration of it. And it's probably the manliest film that I love. <laughs> so I'm so glad you got to see it. It's Oh, it's fantastic. Anthony Mann films are a mind trip. Yeah, you can't really dig into Westerns without going deep on Anthony Mann and how he handles them. But there is such a great sense of humanity. And this is also such a fuller ensemble. Like you're getting characters introduced throughout and then the reveal of connections between them. Oh, it's perfect. The gun competition scene the shooting competition is my favorite samantha what's your number two my number two does not star shelly winters unfortunately <laughs> i think this will be a surprise to you both for the first time this year i watched magnificent obsession i'm so thrilled to have been selected to appear in magnificent obsession so grateful, really, that I'd like to tell you something about what is perhaps the screen's most inspired, most dramatic love story. Primarily, it deals with the lives of two people. Bob Merrick, who is wild and spoiled, and Helen Phillips, who sees him in anger and defiance because his careless ways have destroyed her husband and will surely destroy her. Was it my fault? I didn't ask you for your resuscitator, you know. Smash up somebody's car when you're drunk and write out a check. Get in a mess with a showgirl and write out a check. And when a man dies, write out a check to his widow. Account paid in full. Listen, Mr. Leave Phillips. me alone! What? No, I know. The twist that really surprised and delighted me when I looked at my Letterboxd 2020 is that Rock Hudson was my most watched actor of the year. <laughs> I watched seven of his films in 2020 and six of them were new to me including the three famous Cirque appearances in Magnificent Obsession, All That Heaven Allows, and Written on the Wind. I saw all of those for the first time in 2020. Obviously Rock Hudson then is the connector. There we go. Years, so there That's go. the one film of his that I saw this year that I had seen before. <laughs> I could not tell you why I put the, off watching this film so much. There were so many chances for me to watch it and I just dug my feet in. I had prematurely written off Jane Wyman 
but she was so perfect for this role and she embodied it so well with her really powerful performance that I was eager to see more of her by the end of it, which I never thought would happen. It's so beautiful, so tragic. I'm the type of person, obviously, if you guys have seen this podcast before, I get wrapped up in the film's romance and I don't worry too much about the details. So this is perfect for me. I also held off seeing this initially because of the age difference between Jane and Rock, but seeing their chemistry and how skillfully their age as a topic is woven into the story, it makes their love perfectly natural and I didn't even question it. But now I finally understand the genius of Cirque and the poignant films that he made with Rock and Jane in particular. And as soon as I saw this, I instantly bought both this and All the Heaven Allows during the next Criterion sale. So you can call me a new Cirque fan. I can tell you that Olivia de Havilland and Paul Newman, according to my letterbox, were my top stars that I watched this year. Mine were Rock Hudson and then for the ladies, very surprisingly, Una Merkel. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Very strange. Always, always good. My number one is going to keep me firmly in the 60s. And it was also technically a watch inspired by this podcast. We did an episode last year with Nancy Wong Yuen talking about Anime Wong. We had talked about the Crimson Kimono very briefly. Andrea and I at least had talked about James Shigita. I decided that I needed to watch some other stuff. And so I discovered Flower Drum Song from 1961. For two glorious years, Broadway hugged Flower Drum Song to its bosom. And now it's all here. The fascinating story laid in San Francisco's colorful Chinatown. The irrepressible fun. The lovemaking, tempestuous and tender. The sparkling musical numbers, the music and songs that only Rodgers and Hammerstein could create. Starring that petite, delightful ball of fire, Nancy Kwan, star of Susie Wong. Into her gay life, there suddenly comes a rival, a picture bride. Handsome James Shigeta, busy sowing his wild oats. Adorable Miyoshi Umeki, the unwanted picture bride. She's strong as a cow and just as amiable. Flower Drum Song is one of the few, I think at the time it was the most prominent Hollywood production starring an uh, all Asian cast up until Crazy Rich Asians. That is a weird historical footnote that is unsettling. Directed by Henry Koster, who is a director that I love. Most of his stuff I tend to gravitate towards. It's the story of a Asian woman who is brought over to the US, played by Miyoshi Umeki who was there to get married to an Asian-American played by James Shigita. Unfortunately, though, James Shigita's character is in love with an Asian-American nightclub singer played by Nancy Kwan. There's this hilarious comedy of manners that plays out that looks at the dichotomy between being Asian immigrant versus a second generation, somebody who has grown up in America and does not have that connection to the past as James Shigita's character does. I can tell you that as a musical, I did not care for this in terms of the song production. I couldn't name you one song from this movie. They all sounded the same. They are not that great. Nancy Kwan has a big number that is a song that has been utilized in a lot of commercials. I enjoy being a girl, which you probably have seen it in other movies. But other than that, couldn't tell you a song from this movie, but that is not the point. I thought this film was just a lovely romance about 
growing up and finding your roots and your identity and trying to stay true to your own individual identity, but also wanting to hold on to this heritage, the relationship between Miyoshi Umeki and James Shigeta is so much swoon. James Shigeta should have been Cary Grant level because the man was fine as hell and is a total romantic dreamboat. It is very hard for me to watch Die Hard these days. I have feelings. I love this. I thought this was a fantastic musical. I want it put up against all of the best romantic musicals, even though the songs aren't great. I just love this. I thought this was fantastic. And I was so happy that I got to finally sit down and watch it. Y'all are going to hate me. I've not only never seen this, I do not know who James Shigeta is. Girl, by, <laughs> by the end of this 2021 I need you to have watched Flower Drum Song or The Crimson Komodo. It is on Criterion. Okay. And discover the joys of James Shigeta. <laughs> I do love me some Nancy Kwan, so that's going to get my foot in the door. I have been wanting to watch that, though. Honestly, that's been on my list. He's definitely in the deep smolder realm of leading man, which is very nice. I agree. Flower Drum Song, strangely, I remember watching with my grandfather decades ago he was not a musicals fan i have no idea why this movie in particular but i can remember sitting at their tv in the basement in nebraska watching this movie specifically yay Kristen! i should re-watch it if that's maybe the last memory i have okay so my third pick or my number one pick but again not ranked order is making me realize i did not choose any love stories this year and i love a love story so who knows but i'm putting this on because it gave me so much joy it's from in the samantha time realm it's 1938 film a slight case of murder but with edward g robinson directed by lloyd bacon say ed i caught that new epic of yours last night at a sneak preview what you mean a slight case of murder say tell me how'd you like it happy it's a socceroo as a matter of fact i'm heading my list of best bets with it in next sunday's column well, that's swell, coming from you, Helen Jeff. You know, I've been wanting to get into an honest-to-goodness comedy for a heck of a long time. My wife has seen me die in pictures so often, she was beginning to feel like a celluloid widow. Well, Eddie, I've always wanted to see you play a Damon Runyon story, because Damon paints the big town and the guys and gals of Broadway as they really are. And that's right down your alley. I had one look at that script, and I offered to do it for nothing. Well, almost nothing. This movie is so rewarding if you know Edward G. Robinson's work, if you're familiar with him as a gangster, because it's him spoofing that genre and his own place in it. And so it feels like a movie that's just fun on its own. But if you're someone who likes classic film and has watched a lot of those, how it's tweaking with characters that you've known from other films and seen in very hard-boiled ways and this is a mockery of them oh what is the name of the woman who plays his wife i think it's ruth donnelly edward g robinson plays someone who had been a bootlegger and then after the prohibition alcohol is legal so he's like i'm gonna go legit i'm just gonna sell alcohol but everyone's still af afraid of him so no one can tell him his beer is just disgusting so it's like hijinks and nonsense he's going to go to his summer house and finds out there's four dead gangster bodies in it but again for comedy so it's this like oh this comedy of errors and his wife who's like trying to pass herself as upper crust and all of this but 
Her accent keeps slipping. She doesn't blink at the bodies. She's just like, oh, this will look terrible to the neighbors. I just found it so funny and so lighthearted. And he's so good in it. And it's so fun to see an actor so specifically skewer part of their own persona. And I also had no idea what it was about. I thought I was going to be watching a straight up regular gangster movie. And then I realized, I was like, oh, it's called A Slight Case of Murder. It's probably a little tongue-in-cheek. And it was very tongue-in-cheek. I haven't seen this one. Edward G. Robinson, I tend to be, like, mad on. So, I don't know. The way you describe this, it might be right up my alley. It sounds delightful. I agree. I'm not really an Edward G. Robinson kind of girl, but that sounds wonderful. Especially if it's in my era, as you said. It's right in your time period, so you'll be very familiar with it. His hard-boiled stuff, it can be a very one-note. Yes, you're all bad, brah, tough guys. And this is mocking that. And I'm always down for mocking tough guys. It's my thing. Yeah, let's just mock the toxic or not toxic masculinity of Edward G. Robinson. That sounds amazing. All right, my number one. This was actually the first movie I saw of 2020. And I believe it's the only one that I gave five stars. Kristen, you're going to hate me. It's smiling through. Wilt thou have this man to thy wedded husband to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou obey him and serve him, love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other? Keep the only unto him, so long as ye both shall live. I will. Wayne. Jerry, at my wedding. There'll be no wedding. Be silent, sir. You mad, Wayne? Get out of here. I don't actually hate Smiling Through, which is weird because it has everybody I hate in it. It's one of the few movies that I really enjoy. Okay, well, that's actually very surprising. We're going to have to touch on that. Smiling Through with, obviously, Norma Shearer, Leslie Howard, and Friedrich March. I'm definitely already due for a rewatch of this film because I watched it January 2nd. But going off of my review of it, I said it was sublime, although probably too sappy for the average viewer. And the actors and their styles are definitely products of their time. But if you adore completely over-the-top romantic pictures like I do, this is a must. Norma Shearer especially has a great opportunity to show a full range of emotion here. She shows everything from absolute bliss to the depths of sorrow in both of her roles. She draws the audience in like a magnet. I'm obviously very partial to Norma Shearer. She's always been a favorite of mine. As for Howard, who I usually find pretty wooden, this is my favorite of all of his films that I've seen so far. The love scenes are just beautiful. There's such a chance for him to explain why his character is the way he is through his mannerisms and through his different ages. As far as Friedrich March goes, it makes your heart ache while they're not overdoing it. It's hard to compare to something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't think he could ever top that. He comes pretty close. If I had any points that I'd take off of this film, I mean, I gave it a full five stars, but the dialogue in the flashbacks wedding scene could have been improved. 
And like I said, March has been better in other films, but I teared up in almost every scene when I watched this and I, I definitely need to watch it again. It's like such a hard recommend for me and the kind of movie that I love. It's a hard film to really get people on board with because it starts out in the past with this very overwrought story of lovers quarrel and this trio of people and this like I can't have you no one can plotline and then it transitions into this modern version with the same actors playing different versions of these characters but history is playing out and then it's got that Les Miserables-esque moment where ghosts are talking to you at a certain point <laughs> that's what I love about it is just how heavy-handed it is and overly emotional it's like a six hanky movie for the actors that they assemble, because the story is so melodramatic, you need melodramatic performers. So it's a great union of acting and story. I don't think you could have told this with any other performers and it would have worked. Norma and Friedrich both I completely agree on. But the fact that you throw someone who's usually as stoic as Leslie Howard into the mix, I mean, he plays very thoughtful characters but he doesn't show a very wide range of emotion in his films like petrified forest gone with the wind what have you this really gives him a chance to step up and provide that emotion to match the other actors and that's why this is my favorite of his he really has the chance to emote and he doesn't usually emote well, I want to throw out some more honorable mentions from us as well as our listeners. I'll read another one of our listeners. This comes actually from the podcast duo known as the Goldwyn Girls of Amelia and Meredith. If you haven't listened to their podcast, you should. They gave us separate lists of a couple of their discoveries on Amelia's list. I won't read the whole one, but she sent over stuff like The Mortal Storm, Thing from Another World, Diabolique planet earth and my personal favorite 1974's earthquake meredith also included a list that includes the conformist the gang's all here harlan county usa and hangover square we also got quite a few tweets from people the movie palace at movie palace pod said i enjoyed discovering some pre little caesar gangster films this year in particular raul walsh's regeneration from 1915 was great fun happily retired tweeted pandora's box with louise brooks valentina said i discovered brief encounter very early in quarantine and not a day has gone by where I don't think about it, instantly became a new favorite movie. J.C. Smith at cliche underscore mist said, Fritz Lang's Denibelung, which is actually two movies, they are amazing, and The Godfather 2 might not be the best sequel ever. Classic Film Annalie at Classic Film L1 said, I'm kind of a classic film newbie. The Bishop's Wife, The Burglar, Holiday Affair, Dial M for Murder, Untamed Youth, Blue Hawaii, A Place in the Sun, Postman Always Rings Twice, Key Largo, Destry Rides Again, and a ton of Universal and Hammer flicks were all first watches from me this year. Our friend Farron Nemi at Self Styled Siren said that her number one was The Shop on Main Street from 1965, which is available on the Criterion channel. Our patron Peter Bryant at PM Bryant said, I have at least four great ones I discovered. The most obscure of these may be Forever in a Day from 1943. It is an excellent episodic series of stories spanning multiple generations, much better than I could have imagined with such a giant cast of luminaries. And Emily Graziano at Flapper Dame 16 said, I discovered Sunday in New York. Rod Taylor and Jane Fonda were an unexpected great on-screen couple. 
Thank you to everybody who responded to our tweet with some great suggestions. We have some honorable mentions. Samantha, were there some that just barely made your list that you want to shout out? Oh, for sure. More 1930s films, which is no surprise to anyone. I'll start with another Norma Shearer film. I saw Private Lives for the first time. I'm usually not a Noel Coward fan, but I can't deny that the script was fantastic. And I'm not a Robert Montgomery fan either. And this movie really turned me on to Robert Montgomery. Brides Are Like That, which is definitely the most obscure film I saw this year. It has Ross Alexander in the lead opposite Anita Louise from 1936. It's an adorable romantic film. It's very short. It's so pleasant. And I really love Ross Alexander's character in it. He's a romantic rival, but he keeps hyping up his romantic rival. He's like, oh, he's such a great dude too. You can't go wrong. It's fantastic. And he's very blasé. I love Ross Alexander. I should have made many more movies. His untimely death was just the worst. And then a really powerful gut punch for the end of my honorable mentions, the story of Temple Drake. I bought the Criterion. It was a blind buy, but I knew that I was going to love it. And I definitely did. It's a very, very difficult film to watch. I can't believe they made it in 1933. Miriam Hopkins is just fantastic. And the art direction in it is really fascinating too. It's a great one. More 1930s films, no surprise to anyone. <laughs> Drea, what about you? Any honorable mentions? Actually, one of the ones listed in the tweets you said, I'll throw into mind quickly as well. Destry Rides Again is another Western that I really love this year. I might have seen it before this year, but I don't remember. And again, it's another Jimmy Stewart, which is why I didn't put it in my top three. But if you're ever interested in seeing Marlena Dietrich in a totally different energy, she plays not a dance hall. What's the Western saloon? A saloon girl. Yes. Thank you. She's this body saloon girl, which I sort of loved. In another Samantha era film, sought out this film this year because there was a modern release in the last few years of Mary Queen of Scots came out in the last couple of years. And so I went back and saw Mary of Scotland, the Catherine Hepburn and Frederick March. There we can uh, find another connective thread. Obviously, I'm a Kate Hepburn fan. I love her and think she's regal. If you're someone who gets deep into British history and tracing the crown or whatever you could be like ah she feels a little american she has that haughtiness that you want in a sovereign that fit it was nicely dramatic and i liked seeing her in something totally different and then the other is a film that i have long been like how have i not seen this it's one of those ones you get a lot of like what you guys i finally saw you can't take it with you I didn't put it on my list because I didn't find it. Oh, this is amazing. It's so lovely and happy. It's this rich guy who gets engaged to a woman who is not rich and then meets her family and they're a bunch of crazy archetype. Again, another James Stewart. Maybe that was my thread. I'm not on Letterboxd, but it would not surprise me if he came across as my number one for this year. It's a big movie. I had several almost. You can actually read the full list of 40 that I came up with over at journeysandclassicfilm.com. A lot of it is very easy to see where my head was at if it was heavy and dealt with a lot of issues that were, we were dealing with all year and or starred Paul Newman or Olivia de Havilland tended to catch my attention. I will throw out five 
that I was really taken with. The film that would have made my number one was actually from 1984. I was fortunate to spend all day during TCM Summer Under the Stars tribute to Goldie Hawn watching several movies of hers that I'd never seen. And the one that I just fell in love with, which would have been on my list, is Swing Shift. Samantha would be really into it. It's very much a throwback to the 1940s era of women workers. Goldie Hawn plays a factory worker. She is a married woman, but she wants to go to work and find her independence. Ends up meeting hot trumpet player played by Kurt Russell. This is the movie where they met and fell in love. And it's just fantastic. And I loved every single second of it. And then I found out that Goldie Hawn hated making the movie. It's amazing. I was so in love with this film. It is a perfect movie. Go watch it if you have not seen it. And they are like relentless charm machines. Right? And everybody's beautiful. I'm sorry, Ed Harris, but you're not going to win this this fight. Okay, this isn't going to happen. Some other ones that I want to throw out. 1951 Storm Warning with Ginger Rogers and Doris Day. They play sisters. Ginger Rogers comes to visit one day and stumbles, of course, upon a man killed in the street by the KKK. And she finds out that her sister's husband played by everybody's favorite oily bohunk, Steve Cochran, is a KKK member. Ronald Reagan plays a detective. I was kind of shocked for 1951. It's a very overt film about the Ku Klux Klan. It's a little soft on what they believe in. I mean, the racism angle isn't really touched on, but it's a dark, dark, important film that I was just so struck by. 1962, Sweet Bird of Youth. This is the Tennessee Williams adaptation where Paul Newman plays a gigolo who is courting a fading actress played by Geraldine Page. He's also trying to get his old girlfriend back played by the late Shirley Knight. I thought this movie was so great. A, if you just want to see Paul Newman be like a sex god for two hours, it's a perfect movie. All the gifts are good. I've used several of them. And Geraldine Page, I love her so much unsung actress every time she opened her mouth i could hear madame medusa from the rescuers in my head which is very weird i have to say that like sweet bird of youth and the roman spring of mrs stone would make a pretty interesting double header if you're looking for the gigolo older actress and there's a worse hot gigolos to look at than the warren Beatty. Paul Newman. Paul Newman in their Yeah, prime. I can see why we're paying top dollar. The other one that I throw out is 1963's Take Her, She's Mine. This one was, I actually saw in FX movies. They show the old Fox titles before noon. So if you have that channel, you should check out some of the stuff that they have. I love Jimmy Stewart in his crotchety dad phase that he did in the late 60s. Um, he plays a dad whose daughter is Sandra D, and she's going to college. And he can't handle that. It proceeds to embarrass himself trying to spy on her and follow her around and see what she's doing. And it's very funny, very relatable. And it has one of my favorite lines that I quote obsessively. He's telling the story to a group of parents about how he's gotten into all this trouble. And all the parents start relating about how much it costs to go to co- send their kid to college and how their kids are dumb. And it culminates with this one guy saying, I pay $5,000 for that lummox to play a flute. I love that line so very much. The last one I throw out is from 1937, Samantha's sweet spot. It's Love I'm After with Leslie Howard, Olivia de Havilland, and Betty Davis. I saw this one early in the pandemic, so I probably need to revisit it, but Olivia de Havilland plays like a stalker who is in love with Leslie Howard, who is this theater performer who believes his own hype. It's really funny. 
Betty Davis plays the long-suffering girlfriend. I was really looking for movies that they weren't like really dark, just were kind of light and frothy and had pretty people in them. Those are the ones that I almost made this list. But listeners, you can send us your classic film discoveries of 2020. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. We'll read them on another episode, or you can tweet them to us at ticklish underscore biz. We'd like to thank everybody for listening. You can always follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Samantha, where can fans find to get in touch with you? What's going on with all your works? Hopefully, Cooking Under the Stars will make a triumphant return in 2021. I have some really cool posts in the works for ClassicMovieHub.com. You can find my blog at Musings of a Classic Film Addict. And my Twitter, which is probably the most active of the three, is at Classic Film Geek. Andrea Clark, what about you? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And I have a contemporary podcast called Who Shot Ya? If anyone wants to hear me babble about newer films as well. You can listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Literally, we are now on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review if you're on there. We're also on Spotify. We are on Pandora. We are on iHeartRadio. We are on everything. If there is something that we are not on, let me know and I will make sure that we are on it. You can also check out our Patreon, which is still going strong at patreon.com slash ticklish biz for just a dollar you can get access to exclusive pins we also have a lot of bonus content that is on there including a bunch of interviews that we have done we get episodes like this a whole two days early we have our two bonus shows based on a true podcast william bibiani and i talk about true crime and biopics we just did our last episode on mank which is now on netflix if you want to uh, listen to us talk about it and then watch that and then I also do double features with Adam Kautzer, where we talk about the movies that Hollywood talks about again and again and again. We are about to kick off January with a look at the dueling versions of Straw Dogs, which probably not the best way to start 2020, but I did it anyway. You can head over there to learn more. Uh, we will be back next time. So, bye.